What's up, everybody? Welcome back to One on One. Me, Christian Arlovitz. Pleasure to have everybody back. Thank you for tuning in to the last episode of Sholo Menadwinia. Man, I love that kid. I know you guys do, too. And uh, as you know, I've been talking about Cobra Kai since uh, it was on the YouTubes. Before, it was super cool to love it like everybody is now that it's on uh, Netflix. So... Not only are we going to keep going on with the Cobra Kai, I have a I have a really great guest here today, a really fun guest. And the way that I was introduced to this particular guest, not only from being a fan of his work, obviously, and things like Cobra Kai, and uh, he was the star of Richard Jewell. Uh, I first saw him in Itania. So there's so much that this guy's already done. But then he turns out he's a massive wrestling fan. And you guys know my history with wrestling. And, and then someone had tagged him. On the if there's people that you know that might like the movie trivia showdown, who would it be? And somebody tagged this guy. I started following him. We started talking, and I started kind of deep diving into his love for wrestling. He's uh, he, he knows he knows what he's talking about. So I'm going to stop talking about him and let him tell you about him. It is the one and only Paul Walter Hauser is here. What's up, man? How you doing? Oh, you're muted there. There you go. I got you. I got a um, got a creation. Uh, Acai bowl. I'm trying to be healthy. Where'd you get that? You just make it in your uh, you make it in your place? No, no, I'm much too lazy for that. I paid about thirteen dollars for this at a place called Creation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so my buddy, it's my, incredible, not good. It's a big ass bowl of healthy stuff. Yeah, it's, I can't do it. I saw you tweeting out about uh, what was it, Domino's or something the other day. I, I can't, I, I can't do it. I can't do the Domino's. It it's something of some kind of pizza. You, some somebody had commented on it, and you uh, you went back on. I just. Something about- I do love Domino's. Like I, I um, if if I'm going for fast food chain pizza, yeah, I'll, I'll choose Domino's over um, over Papa John's any day. But you know, there is that phrase: nobody out pizzas the hut. And uh, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe I don't know. yeah, I can't. I can't do it. I'm, it's the it's the New York pizza snob in me, man. I I've like I I. I'm very, very picky about the pizza in general, but uh, we'll do a pizza podcast. Do a pizza podcast another another episode. I want to talk about you though, man. There's so much. There's so much to talk about with you because um, I was I was very excited to start just chatting up with you because I've been a fan. I was talking to Sholo about you actually. We had a little. We had a little segment just on you. It's because you. I know that you had been doing a lot of TV work and stuff. And then obviously you broke through with kingdom and that was, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, like your first like kind of big thing that you were doing, but I think you burst out to the scene for a lot of people with I, Tanya. That was, that was the one that I think everybody kind of said, well, who's this guy? He's phenomenal. Yeah. I gotta be honest. Uh, kingdom wasn't that much of a breakthrough. It was creatively. Yeah. And it was financially. I got to quit like waiting tables. Right, that's that's kind of that's kind of what I meant. Yeah, sorry. I, I thought it was the one where people actually. No, you're, you're, yeah, but I, I, you know, I Cobra Kai, <clears throat> Kingdom was weird, man. So Kingdom was like, Kingdom. They said, "Hey, we'd like you to go on an audition. It's for a co-star, tiny part. It's for an MMA show at Direct TV, starring Nick Jonas." I'm like, that doesn't sound like something I'd watch. Um, and and then, yeah, no offense, I'm just at least I being honest, yeah. I'm telling the truth, I, I didn't sound that appealing. Also, DirecTV hadn't done Jack outside of regular, you know, reprogramming cable and showing sports, so I didn't think anything of it. 
turned out to change my entire life. Um, Cobra Kai was similar where like they said, Hey, it's on YouTube. And, uh, and it's a sequel to the karate kid, but 30 years later, that could suck tremendously. By the way, saying we're doing a Tanya Harding biopic could have also sucked tremendously. It could have been like a lifetime, you know, movie of the week type of thing. But what's funny about all these projects, I Tanya, Cobra Kai, Kingdom, they're all headed up by brilliant people behind the scenes. So Byron Belasco wrote Kingdom really as a family drama set on the backdrop of sports. Uh, Cobra Kai is sort of just this beautiful nostalgia overload where you end up caring about all these characters, even in the cheesier comedic moments. And then I, Tanya was the same where you're like drawn in and taken in by these characters. Uh, even, even though they're, they're sort of Christopher guest mockumentary idiots at many points. So I think it's, you know, don't judge a book by its cover is what I've learned from those gigs. I, I think it's also a bit of I give everything a shot and find out. Because... Yeah, I think it's also a bit of I mean, it, it's luck too, right? Because you and and instinct. Because when you look and you get like you said, if you you got to trust your gut because of those. I mean, just talking to Josh and John and and Hayden about the, uh, that was their Star Wars as far as Cobra Kai goes, and that the way that they put their effort into it and, and listen to them because they knew exactly what you just said uh, how most people f- had looked at that and, and to be honest i love the show I'm, I'm re-watching it right now but to be honest when it first came out i'm a karate kid like purist and when that came out i was like oh no is this gonna be like part three all over again is this gonna i'm like what are they doing and and then i just fell in love with it so you're right it's all about the creators but it's also about trusting your gut and knowing okay this is the project that's that's gonna work yeah i think <clears throat> Put it this way, another cheat for creatives is who's involved. Ten years ago, I did a movie with Paul. It was called Adam. The movie, the script was not that great, and they weren't paying me anything. I was basically breaking even. But I knew after watching Breaking Bad, I binged the first two seasons before I shot the film. I was like, I want to work with Aaron Paul, no matter what. So there are going to be times where you'll probably see me in a stinker or a clunker once in a while, hopefully not more than once in a while, but it'll be because I'm like, I got to work with so-and-so. Yeah. Well, let me go ahead. No, I was just going to say with Itani, it was like that because I I was like, I don't know if this is going to make for a good story, but, you know, Margo and Allison were attached immediately. And I'm like, I don't think I'm going to pass on Margo and Allison if I get that job, you know? Yeah. Well, can you tell me about that though, because I, I feel like from just like just talking to you for like two seconds here and just watching what I've seen in interviews, it's like I feel like you're really, really good in the room. And from what I've heard, also when it comes to like the five bloods, and you tell me if this is true, false, or just uh, something on the internet, but I I heard that you you and and uh, Spike just hit it off like immediately in the room that he he had asked for your phone number in the audition. Yeah, that was for Black Klansman. So I went in. It was like a three, four-page audition. Okay. I went in for the lead, <clears throat> the lead bad guy role. Who you know, Jasper Pakinen, the Finnish actor, ended up playing him. But I went in, and you know, I just really tore into it and improvised, and I, I gave a whole speech. Like I added an extra speech at the end, where yeah. which could have been bad. You know, Spike is a writer on the movie; could have kicked me out of the room essentially. 
but I gave this big racist ass speech and really owned it, you know, in the room. And Spike was laughing and he loved it. And uh, he's like, sit down, man. Where are you from? What, what, what movies do you watch? Sidney Lumet, Martin Scorsese, Philip Seymour Hoffman. We're just kind of like talking about stuff we love. And it did start to feel like just two guys that love movies talking about movies rather than a job interview. Now, that doesn't always happen. Yeah. I've been in many cold audition rooms where they're not that, not that warm. Uh, but Spike was warm. Gave me a bro hug, took my number down, and I left feeling like, what the hell just happened? Like, right. how did that work? It was crazy. But, uh, yeah, I got the part. I might have made, like, 8000 bucks on the movie. I didn't make much at all. But, like, a friend of mine took me out to lunch, and I was complaining about <clears throat> having to put myself up in an Airbnb and them not putting me up in a hotel. My friend, she she put me in my place. Uh, her name's Asta Lee. She's an actress. She goes – you five years ago you would have paid to be in a spike lee movie and now you're complaining that you don't have a hotel right yeah and i was like yep i'm sorry you're 100 percent right let's go do the movie and of course that also changed my career quite a bit and it led to the offer on the five bloods well that's what i was going to say because it seems like that when you're doing a movie like that and especially all the the buzz that that film got and the and the accolades that it got and the more notice and that's what i was kind of talking about with you is you have this thing that you can do whether it's kingdom or or it's or it's that movie in particular it's like i don't want to root for you or i don't want to like you when you're in movies like that and i shouldn't because obviously you're you're straight up racist in that in that film but i'm watching i'm like but this guy is so charming and he does something. And, and like you said, you put out this speech and you're making Spike laugh inside of the room. And it's you're able to to do that with all of your roles, because that's the same thing. I'll be I'll be completely honest with you. When I saw Itani, I was like, OK, this could be like a Saturday Night Live character, if not done right. And yeah. and but you made because I, I followed that story very when I was younger. I remember that story so well. I remember that guy was a straight up imbecile and he was a Saturday Night Live character, but he was a real human being. And you did that. So is that, you know, when you go into a role, are you looking into what the real person was, obviously, but it, but it's still being able to to move and use that charm that, that you that you certainly have. Thanks for saying that, man. I, I think <clears throat> always ground everything. You know, always ground everything. I don't know how Brendan Gleeson is playing Trump in the new uh, James Comey yeah. series, but yeah. what I do know is if it's any good, it'll be it'll be because he grounded it first and got to know the person before leaping off the page and doing all the choices. And I think, you know, with with Itania, are there moments of strategic comedy placed to make an audience laugh? Of course there are, and there are things from the but at the end of the day it has to come from truth if it doesn't come from truth and you're just trying to be funny you're like a kid running into a room just saying i need attention you know like it's like dangling the keys or whatever like it's it's not it's not authentic and i think lack of authenticity is is where performances kind of go south um hence you know in con air nicholas cage's southern accent it's permissible because it's a Michael Bay, you know, Simon West, shoot him up, yeah. shoot me in the head, I'm still alive type of movie. But, and I love it, but, you know, if Daniel Day Lewis played that role in Con Air, <laughs> you would have actually feared him. Yeah. 
he would have made you fear him. And the Southern accent would have been super nuanced. And that's just the difference between the authenticity and non-authenticity. You know? Yeah, and I, and I think that that's kind of what, what what I've seen from a lot of your stuff so far in your really, honestly, young career. And I think that one of the things that I was going to ask you, though, when you have that, when you talk about being grounded and like kind of looking into where you grew up and your background, and uh, there's there's a lot. Like your, your your dad was a Lutheran minister. Is that is that accurate? Still is. Now my brother is too. He's uh, he's sixth generation Lutheran pastor. Okay, so that's kind of where I wanted to get to. And so you you grew up in in Michigan, and so there there's so many questions I have because when you because what. Let's just start with this. So when as you're growing up as a kid and your dad and how many brothers and sisters do you have? You have one brother? I'm one of four. So I got older brother oh. Matt, older sister Julia, younger sister Elise. They're all married with kids and they're they're badass, dude. They're oh. awesome. Yeah. So super so super like you're you're obviously really close with your family and your dad kind of grew up. Was your dad like your hero growing up? I mean, both my parents were definitely my hero in the sense that they put up with me. They supported all my creative endeavors as if they were normal. And, uh, and, you know, there was always love. Even when they were disciplining me or pissed, you know, yeah. there was always love, man. And, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. My, my heroes were a little more grandiose as far as, like, you know, my heroes were Brett Favre and Michael Jordan and Steve Borden, who played Sting in the WCW wrestling company. Like, oh. Those are my heroes. Uh, and then as I got older and I knew I was going to act for sure, or I was going to at least attempt to, that's when my heroes were Phil Hoffman and Daniel Day-Lewis, you know? Right. Well, so that's that's kind of where – did you – So there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people I, that I know that um, that come from a very religious background. I know that is very um, – when I look at stuff that you still are tweeting out and how God uh, is in, important in, in your life, and um, did you – from the moment when you were a kid, did you did you take to it right away? Did you ever push back against it? Was it always was was there ever any doubt, or was it always just no? This is this is what I was taught. This is my beliefs, and it always has kind of kept me strong. That's a that's a good question. Um, I don't know if anybody's asked me that. That's and I've done a bunch of these now, so good on you. Um, I mean, listen, man, <clears throat> real honest. Yeah. When you're a kid, when you're a kid growing up in church you are kind of going through the motions. It's not that you can't have faith. It's that a lot of it is roboticized and you're, you know, it's the same way you pour your cereal. You don't know you're unconsciously Pavlovian in in your methodology of everything you do. So was it genuine as a kid? Yeah. Did I doubt? Not really because you kind of just, you know, it's like believing your parents are going to buy groceries every week. Mm -hmm. You know, you put your faith in something and it keeps showing up so you don't stop putting your faith in it. I uh, I feel bad for those that were wounded at a young age emotionally because they're having their divorced, sexual abuse, uh, being bullied in school. I mean, that's what can pull you or draw you away from God and belief because you're feeling the hurt and the sin of the world, you know, uh, upon you, your victim. So I totally understand people falling away, unfortunately, but I think, and what best answer I can give is this, uh, without ram- rambling and ranting, which I tend to do. Best example I can give is in uh, marketing and advertising. They say that people, they make a purchase based off emotion, and later on they will try to uh, justify it with logic. 
So I think as a kid, it's, you know, it's emotion. But yeah. then later in life, you have to like have logical moments and go on a journey where it's like you and Jesus got to go do the thing. You got to tell them all your painful shit. You got to actually go there like a therapist and you got to discover it on your own. Because if you're just robotically going through the motions at a church, and God doesn't want that from you anyway. He wants a relationship. Yeah. I mean, I went to Catholic school for all up until I graduated high school. I went to an all boys Catholic high school. I was my in Queens in New York and my daughter keeps calling me. Um, so when I, and so I, I definitely, I, I will be again, honest with you is that I'm, I'm not, I think I'm very spiritual. I think I'm, I'm spiritual. I certainly believe in something. I believe in, I believe in, um, uh, you know, there's, there's times that I still, I, I, I talk to God and I say to myself, I believe that I have my certain beliefs that I have and, and energy uh, and that I believe in. But I also, the same as you, as what you just said is I don't ever want to disparage anybody and what they believe. I think that some, and like you said, sometimes you can understand why people kind of move away or do something. But the reason I kind of bring that up also is I have a very close friend, uh, Ken Knapsack, who's a buddy of mine who works on this show, who also came from a very religious background and he was a wrestling fan, but there were certain things that he was allowed to watch and not allowed to watch. And I believe that you were watching, you, you came up during, when you started watching, you were watching in the attitude era. Is that, is that right? Oh yeah. My parents didn't know. I was, if they would have seen me watching that stuff, they would have been like, <clears throat> turn this crap off. But I was a WCW kid. So like, I liked the WWE, but I was sold out on like sting, Ric Flair, uh, Booker T, the Steiner brothers, yeah. TV, like Goldberg. I was totally, rooting for WCW and then by about 99 2000 big show Jericho Benoit Guerrero Saturn and Malenko all did the mass exodus within a year year and a half and I was like those guys are some of the best guys on the roster yep. no mistake some of the best matches were with Dean Malenko so like to me it was like suddenly the character the workhorse character actors of the wrestling world were to a you know WME or something you know they left they left UTA and went to WME and I was like well that's the better company now so yeah man I my parents didn't see all the uh, gratuitous stuff they kind of just assumed I was watching dudes in tights fake beat each other up you know oh so you maneuvered around it smart see smart on you that's that's I was when I was younger like I I because I'm I'm significantly older than than you are but like when I was uh when I was growing up i i had to sneak like episodes of like three's company away from my mom right because when i was watching wrestling it was hogan and savage and there it, it was still it was still pretty pretty friendly for the most part and she was she was cool with my with uh with my brothers and i watching it but it was yeah it was that time that you're talking about. i started when i started working for wwe it was it was 2001 and my and i and i told the story that it, my first day there was the milk truck with uh with kurt angle and and stone Cold. that was my first live event that i worked which was crazy. Yeah, man, that's a memory. I, you know, also with the content of that show back in the attitude era, back in the day, you know, it's, it was no different than getting to watch a PG 13 or R rated movie. You know, it's not like there was gratuitous literal sex and like the F bomb. It was, it was, it was probably like a PG 13 action film. So in hindsight, it wasn't that bad, but it's also like, you look back and some of those moments are pretty cringy, you know? 
Oh, stuff that they it's still it's still stuff that they got away with. There was so much. I remember the the interview that that Vince McMahon had with Bob Costas talking about him on on HBO. And and Vince, do you remember this when Vince, when Vince like got in his face? Oh, dude, watch these interviews. He he goes he it's it's crazy. It's almost like he's in character as Mr. McMahon, but it's like Bob Costas isn't really in on it, and he's face to face with him, like point pointing in his face, and they've had like these two or three heated interviews it was amazing but it was because bob was asking him those questions about like are you pushing the limit there are kids that are watching this right now and you've got girls in underwear and, and this and that but the reason another like i saw a, a tweet and um that you had posted out and i actually was am very very interested in this whole scenario is that andrew yang has been talking about um the unionizing of, uh, of wrestlers and this is something i've been into since jesse ventura tried to do it back in the day and hogan ratted him out um like it should have been done a long time ago these these guys and women they put their bodies on the line in a very unique way um because it's not just they're doing painful stunts and athleticism it's also they're doing it with constancy it's not like you know there, there is no off season these people are doing this all of the time. And if a Russian leg sweep hurts your back when you flat back, imagine jumping off uh, uh, a ring apron out through a table. You know, it's you can't you can't keep doing that and upholding that and not getting addicted to pain ki- pills or something. You know, I, I I think it's lunacy that there isn't a union for wrestlers, and there should also be a benefit package to opt out at the age of 50 or 55 or whatever you got to get the hell out at some point yeah it's a creature of habit type thing with vince at this point he's been doing it for so long and i think getting away with it for so long you either care you don't it's like police reform with the statistics of black men being murdered and i don't mean to take this down a rabbit hole but i'm just making the point of you either give a crap and you do something about it or you don't care and you become a bystander i think vince loves the men and women that work for his company. But ultimately, if he cared, he would make changes, even if it hurt his financial bottom line. So he doesn't care. Yeah, I think he comes from that that state of mind of the you know, the businessman. Like, look, I'm paying you X amount of dollars to do this. Invest in your money wisely, and you can figure it out. Which is the wrong way to to look at it. And so he's always looked at it. The thing that got me that this kind of whole thing started with, and I just saw people not allowing the wrestlers to do cameos and doing these other things. It's just, you, it's hard for me to buy into the fact that, well, you know, there, uh, there, there are, it's our likeness. It's our, this, it's our, that, well, the, the, the personalities are not your likeness, uh, th- them like, as if, you know, if Paige wants to go out of Soraya and do her own thing, she should be able to do that. And I think that as, f- because they're freelancers, they're not, they're not employees, they're freelancers. Vince is now doing what his father did to Hogan in the mid eighties with, yeah. with Rocky two or Rocky three or whatever, whichever movie you sure. Vince, Vince senior didn't want Hulk doing the Rocky movie. Cause it wasn't WWF. Right. Cut two. It's a hit movie. He looks better, and he's like, "Okay, we'll strap a rocket ship on you and make you the face of the entire company." So it's yeah. like Vince doesn't even know how much more popular and over his roster would get if they just did their own thing. Well, I think he's a little bit out of touch at this point too. I, love, I mean, I, I'm a, I've always been a massive fan of the WWE and um, and what they've done, and obviously even from from getting the opportunity to be there for a little bit it was it was it was surreal but um i think that they're i think the triple h 
sees it and i think he's done the stuff with nxt which is really great and and i think AEW is starting to shift the change and i know you've been you've been tuning in AEW a lot as well yeah love AEW. i'm friendly with tony khan friendly with jericho friendly with the uh Rhodes brothers i know a bunch of those guys yeah it's good to see what they're doing over there um i'm, I'm pretty excited for the the next uh, transition of it because i think this is gonna i think that with andrew yang getting involved i think there will be some changes so i'm i'm excited to see that but um you know the other thing we also have, yeah go ahead please something he does well which wwe did in the attitude era is you're giving spotlight to your mid card you're not treating them as tertiary you're giving them storylines new angles and gimmick matches. And that's why we cared about that's why we cared about people like the Blue Meanie. And we cared about the road dog Jesse James and all those, you know, sort of mid-card guys. Is they were given something to work with. And so I think AEW is doing that abundantly with guys like Eddie Kingston and tag teams like uh, Private Party. They're being positioned and spotlit in a way where they matter. And I think if you want to keep your roster and not have them leave and jump ship or turn against you. Sometimes it's the little things, you know what I mean? Yeah. They don't need a, a, to double their salary. They need to show they care. You know? I agree. Yeah. I like, and I like the angle that it, it feels more like the way it used to with, with a sport and not, and not just, I, I don't, I always like the, the, it's the, the drama and the story of it. That's my, that's, that's what what's why you care but when it goes a little bit over time i like a balance of story and the sport at the same time and i just feel like the shift has been more so like i watched a match my, my daughter's favorite wrestler is sasha banks so she was watching sasha banks versus uh i think it was oscar and it was it was when i don't know if you've been watching but it, it's when uh it, basically what happened with sasha banks Won the title because Bailey came running into the ring and and threw a countdown. It was like they, they didn't even pay attention to their own rules for the sport. And I was just like, what the hell is going on right now? It's just like they're kind of throwing things at the window to to make this particular story work. And then I turned to AEW and AEW to me, even though there's fun stuff like Jericho getting thrown into this vat of mimosa or whatever, um, it, it still reminded me of like the old school, like you said, the the WCW, uh, Ric Flair days of those types of focus on the wrestling. Uh, and that'll and that'll tell the story for you. So that's what I think that they're doing pretty well over there right now. Hundred percent. They also <clears throat> AEW knows how to honor and utilize the legends. So guys like Jake Jake Roberts and Arn Anderson and Tony Blanchard, they're they're all making money and, and getting paychecks. They get to be creative. <clears throat> the WWE has people come on for cameos, and it's the dumbest thing ever. You get Ron Simmons saying, "Damn." And then a bunch of pity laughter, and then they cut away from them. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it, imagine Michael Caine being brought onto a Chris Nolan film to say two lines of dialogue and be eating, drinking tea in London. It, it would be like offensive. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think that's what's happening too with the roster is AEW is figuring out how to utilize, employ, and honor all these people who busted their backs for three decades. Yeah, I've seen that for sure. And I also appreciate that they have 1980s wrestler bodies and not like these jacked up bodies now. Like some of these, some of these guys are like, they have like, I remember like, there's a, there's a little, little doughy. I like that. I like when they're a little, because it's like not everybody should be all cut up. And like the young bucks, they move around, but they don't have like super cut up bodies, like doughy bodies. I'm like, all right, that's great. Let's, let's, let's get more of that. Um, love it. Yeah. Look, the other thing that we have in common is, is stand up comedy. You know, that's kind of uh, comedy store was my, was my home. 
it was where I cut my teeth. I didn't realize you were, were you were a door guy at Flappers. I was a door guy at Flappers in Burbank. Yeah. I would perform at the comedy store, Meltdown Comics, uh, Formosa Cafe on Santa Monica Boulevard. Yep. And three or four places I would frequent, Flappers and Burbank included. And, you know, I, I never – I just never really made it, man. Like, I I was doing it for, like, 12 years off and on. I wouldn't do it, like, every night. I wouldn't go all, all the time. And at the end of the day, I think I was good, but I wasn't great. And I think you got to be great and really ply your trade and lean into it if you're going to make a career out of it. How, how was it for you? What, what were your sort of likes and dislikes in doing it? Oh, dude, I was addicted to it. Um, it was my, it was everything in my life was because of stand up comedy. I was going up, I was going up uh, seven days a week, two nights, two nights, uh, uh, every, two shows a night. So uh, I would, and I would go to the comedy store, I'd head over to the improv, I'd go back to this place called Room Five on, it was right next to the Acme Comedy Theater on La Brea. Uh, and I would, and you know, the haha ha, uh, ice house, like I, I would, I would go everywhere because that's just kind of, it was like you said, you gotta, you gotta lean into it because on the opposite side, of, of that i was still i would go out on commercial auditions and i just and i hated it i hated auditions because i didn't feel in control on the stage I, on when i was doing stand-up i felt in control because if i if something didn't work it was because i wrote it or i didn't or i didn't say something the right way or i didn't move the right way i didn't you know i didn't i didn't use my my body the way that i should have the night the way i did the night before which induced the laugh and i knew that and i could control that but I couldn't control that in the audition room. And it, it brought out so much um, like I, I, my self-confidence was starting to get affected. I'm like, I'm going in there and pretend, pretend you're, you're next to a dog. Look around the side. I'm like, there's no dog there. I'm like, ah, forget it. I'm going back on the stage tonight. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I had a lot of um, I had a lot of great moments. And that, like I said, like everything that I have in my life, my, including my, my wife and, and everything becomes stand up. So I, I hold it near and dear to my heart for sure. Yeah, it's. um. <clears throat> Listen, there are some things I gained from stand-up. One of them was confidence. So if I can do stand-up in front of 1,500 people at a college opening for Pauly Shore and David Zell yeah. when I was 19 years old, which happened, it's it's not that scary to go in front of two people in a casting office. Well, dude, tell me about that. Tell me about that. How, did, how does that – so you were 19 years old. How do you how do you get – because Pauly's, Pauly's shows are are nuts. So how do you, and especially coming from your background, you must have seen some stuff. You're like, well, I didn't see that kind of stuff when I was growing up. It was uh, a buddy of mine, Kyle Vandevener, was on the college board at Central Michigan University where they would choose, you know, who came to to visit the school. It was usually C-list rock bands and, you know, B-list politicians and uh, freaking – you know, the occasional comedian or magician or whatever the hell. So they were getting Pauly Shore and David Tell. I was working at a cafe in my hometown of Saginaw, and I got a MySpace message from him that said, hey, we have auditions to have someone open for Pauly and Dave. You don't go to the college. They want someone from the college, but I convinced them to let you audition. Like an hour or whatever in Central Michigan. And auditioned, and I did like five minutes of stand-up, and then I just did my Chris Farley, Matt Foley impression. Mm. And people in the room loved it. I ended up in that gig. They literally paid me in concert tickets and Jimmy John's gift cards. <laughs> and uh, I did like 
12 minutes or something, 10, 12 minutes in front of 1,500 people. And these kids ate me alive. I heard people yell, get off the stage, fat ass, and you're not funny and stuff. And I was like, this freaking sucks, man. This is the worst. So the gig itself was kind of like kind of humbling. I thought it was going to be elevating, and it was humbling. Yeah. But Paulie and Dave couldn't have been nicer to me. Paulie took photos of me and my friends, and he said to me at one point, he said, uh, dude, don't stop chasing the dream. And he said it really seriously as he was walking away from me. He like made a point to turn around and said it and looked right at me. I saw Paulie short at a Netflix party like three years ago. <clears throat> I think I was there for Itania, like around award season. And I said to him, I go, hey, dude, I opened for you like 10 years ago or something. And you were nice to me. And I said, you told me not to stop chasing the dream. I didn't. We're both at the same party in L.A. And he was like, cool, man. Take my number down. And he had like a handler and he like exchanged numbers. I never hit him up, but it was it was like. It was a really cool moment, a very full circle moment. You know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. Like I, there was a, I had a, I, I'm still waiting for my full circle moment to where this, this whole thing happened with uh, the brief story of it. Cause I'm sure the, the, the audience is sick of hearing it, but I was, I was on uh, in a full circle type of story where I was, I was fresh to LA. I had just been here for a little bit. My friend took me a birthday to, to the improv. I got up on stage. There was this troupe there led by Rick Overton, who was this uh, very funny uh, actor and comedian. And he had this troupe, and they were coming after me to try to knock me off the stage, as they were supposed to do, because he invited – he's like, yeah, we invite some people up, but nobody ever does it. And I did it. Uh, I got up there, and one out of every 100 times this is going to work. I just couldn't miss, and I was and I was doing very well. I get off stage, and so I'm greeted by – you were – great you were so good oh my god i look and it was sarah silverman and and i'm looking and i say to sarah silverman at this moment paul what i should say is thank you so much can i buy you a drink can i get some information where you where i can go up Do you have any advice i say to her you were great and something about mary she's in the movie for three seconds i walk away and that was it and it was the stupidest thing that i ever did it's one of those moments just like you idiot but i she's one of my like uh wish list interviews of what i want to get because i have to tell her the story of how stupid i was on that particular thing so that's why when you say the paulie shore story i'm glad that it worked out for you um i mean i mean also you know the the best thing a young person can do is ask for advice because it's showing humility a little bit of intellect and initiative you know that's the best thing yeah i was a little annoyed early on where like I met some celebrities and some people and I, I would always try to like, Hey, we should work on something. And like, I did that for the first two, two years in Hollywood probably. And I, I led to some embarrassing moments where I wish I wasn't so thirsty. You know what I mean? But I think yeah. later on I was able to kind of strip that off of me. And now when people do it to me, I'm always, I try to be nice. Cause I know, I know where they're coming from. You know what I mean? Right. Well, that's, well, that's, I mean, you look at the stuff of what you've done. I think that you're, you're, it's probably happening to you more now where people want to do that because I want to get into I got to talk to Richard Jewell because the it's it is very rare um, to where you because what you're what you were doing. You were I mean, you're getting you're crushing it in these roles that you're in these these supporting roles and and just you're, you're making notice where it starts to be like it stops being. Oh, who's that? That guy's good to. Oh, wait, that's Paul Walter Hauser. Like that, that transition starts to happen for you, and then you get Richard Jewell, and you get this lead role of this crazy story directed by 
Clint Eastwood. And I think and and I know at one point DiCaprio and Jonah Hill were going to do it. And then they, they I think they, they still stayed on as producers um, throughout the movie. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, but but either way, how does this come to be to where you get this starring role working for Clint Eastwood? So the truncated but most honest version of the story is that I was I took a meeting with this guy Mike Ireland who used to be an executive at Fox. He might still be, I don't know. Yeah. He was very nice to me. It was a general meeting, I think fall of 2018. And I said to him in the meeting, I go, Hey, are you guys still doing that Richard Jewell movie with Jonah Hill? He goes, uh, yeah, we're trying to do it. We don't know what's going on with DiCaprio, he's so busy. We need a script that everybody likes and signs off on. I don't think we're there. All I said to him is I said, because at that point he'd seen me in Italian Black Klansman. So he liked me, but I'm not even close to being a leading man, obviously. And I said to him, I go, if Joan ever drops out, I hope you'll consider me. And through sort of a pained smile, he, you know, said like, you know, yeah, no, that would be, be a good idea. You know, once again, not being like Hollywood or unkind to me, but I could sense that he was like, you're not going to start in the retro jewel. Right. Um, which at that point I, I get it, but I was shooting a movie in Thailand for spike to five bloods. Yep. And I get a call asking me if I would like to play Richard jewel in a mini series for uh charter cable. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember. Yeah. 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 They still, yeah. It's a great deal of money. Yeah. It's a lot of money, more than I've ever been offered by far. So I go, of course, send me the scripts. I'm sure. I go, yes, yes, do it, do it, do it. CA is like, we'll get in your deal. We'll try to get you some better perks, et cetera, money, whatever. So I let them do that. And I'm now like doing research on Richard Jewell. Three days later, 72 hours later, I get a call from CA saying, Clint Eastwood wants you to play Richard Jewell in his movie. Wait, oh. So I was offered the same character yeah. in opposing projects within three days. Did you find out? But did you find out how that came to be from the switch of like, yeah, hey, you're not playing Richard Jewell kid to Clint Eastwood wants you to play Richard Jewell? Did you find out how, did, how that happened? Eastwood circled the project for five years. Wow. He always wanted to make it. They didn't necessarily want to give it to him or it didn't work out. But also the movie was at Fox. Disney bought Fox and Eastwood only works at Warner Brothers. Yeah. The whole untangling of Christmas lights that had to happen just to get that movie in Clint's hands at Warner Brothers. <clears throat> so while that's happening and they're like, we think we're going to go in July. Uh, we like this movie. I'm like, is it an actual offer? And they're like, no, it's a verbal offer. So I'm right. like, there's no contract. And they're like, no but verbal. And if you need to talk to Clint, you can talk to Clint. And I was like, and I like didn't want to piss Clint off, so I'm like, you don't have to put Clint on the phone. I'll uh, let me sort it out. So three more days go by, and I'm deliberating: do I do the show or the movie? Meanwhile, they almost double the money on the show, mm-hmm. and so I'm like, this movie may not even happen. I've never met Clint Eastwood. I'm alone in Thailand, fighting insomnia and depression while filming this movie. I ended up getting uh, a bacterial infection, went to the mm-hmm. hospital, coming out both ends. Wow. Uh, so I'm like feeling horrible. Yeah. Um. And I'm like, am I really going to pass up almost seven figures to to say yes to Clint Eastwood, even though I haven't met him and the movie might not happen? Uh, and then I'm in bed at four in the morning on the phone with all my reps, my manager and agents, and they're like, what do you want to do? We have to give an answer to the show. 
And I told him, I said, the Bible talks about uh, operating out of fear or love. You can't operate out of both. The two cannot abide. Perfect love casts out fear. So I was like, okay, if I'm a Jesus guy, if this is legit, I'm going to bet on myself here. And I said, fear would tell me to take the money. Love would tell me to work with Clint Eastwood. Tell him I'm passing. And my reps just like thunderous applause. And they're like, yes, this is how careers are made. You make decisions like this. It's a hard decision. You made the right decision. They're going nuts. Um, I got Jewish dudes on the phone saying, I love Jesus. Like they're like, they're all, they're all just like, they're yeah. so, it was so cute and warming to my heart to see my reps be like excited that I made a difficult adult decision. They were yeah. proud of me. That alone made me feel better about it. And then I think three weeks later, I was in the world of Clint, May 29, and he said, start packing on the pounds, eat some donuts, where we start shooting in six weeks. Damn. So that's, I'm telling, I'm going to Vegas with you. I'll tell you that. Uh, But, you know, there's, there's a, uh, all, I mean, you get it. So, all right, you make, you make the gamble, the gamble pays off, you get the gig. And then you you start shooting, and not only do you start shooting, because like you said, you you had been in some, and you worked with some great talent already, but now you're in the lead. Now you're in the lead of a Clint Eastwood directed whole new ball game, whole new ball game. game. And then you're looking over at Sam Rockwell. There's Kathy Bates as your mom. Tell me, well, the one actually, you know, and to, because they want to hear about all that stuff, but something also that I that you know, again, you don't know if it's internet nonsense or if it's if it's true. Um, it, it, it there is was there a line inside of Richard Jewell where you were you, that that called for you to 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 say Jesus's name as a curse word, but you chose to change that. Uh, Eastwood never really caught on to it. They changed the line, and Kathy Bates applauded you for it. Is that is that accurate? Hundred percent accurate. Okay, um, and then I think that and did that ever come up with Clint Eastwood ever? Did he just he didn't even realize that that he. Had, Mind you, Billy Ray wrote an incredible script, but I'm a career improviser. I improvise on everything I've ever done. I don't ask permission. I ask forgiveness. And it's a tool in the tool belt. You know, it's just something you bring to it. Um, Nicholson is no different. Nicholson improvises all the time. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones improvised the I don't care response to Harrison Ford. I didn't kill my wife in The Fugitive. I don't care. So, like, I recognize that whether it's Galifianakis or Tommy Lee Jones, improv can make an entire scene. So I kind of do whatever the hell I want within reason without offending anyone. And then I, I just see what the results are. I've, I've had a couple movies that asked me to do it, maybe three or four in my whole career. And I, I never say it, um, but it's just a respect thing between me and Jesus. It's not like I get mad at other people for saying it, you know, it's sure. just a personal thing. Well, let me, um, let me but, uh, let me outside, uh, outside of not showing my junk yeah. and not saying Jesus, I'll basically do almost anything else in a <laughs> film or TV setting if it warrants it. You know what I mean? I, I do, but how do you so but as as an actor though, just curious, how do you like so couldn't you essentially if you wanted to? I mean, I respect your decision hundred percent. I'm just curious on the side of it where it comes to it's Richard Jewell saying it. It's it's not Paul Walter Hauser saying it. Totally, which is why I don't even think it's that big of a deal to do it. If somebody else did it in real life or in a scene, it wouldn't bother me. It's more just like, uh, I don't know. It's like the guy who sees, and this is that. 
at least I'm honest. It's like if you frequent the same restaurant and you go and you get your soup from some place and you check the bag and the guy put in extra bread because right. he knows you're there all the time. It's uh, it's like that. It's just a, it's just a, a wink or a head nod or a this. So it's just me doing that to Jesus every time I, I have that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, I think that's totally fair. And, and if they didn't catch on, they didn't catch on. You were able to say, and still the scene worked. The scene worked. Um, and well, they, even if they do catch on and say something like, you're going to look like an asshole trying to make me change it. If I said I'm an, I'm a verbal conscientious objector to a singular look. Word yeah. of dialogue. Right. And you're, is it, and is it change? You're, you're going to look like the biggest dick in the world by stopping me from doing that. Right. And does it change that much for you just changing up the, the line there? But so talk to me about working with Kathy Bates, because that was the most endearing thing about that whole thing was she was, Oh man. So great in that movie. She does what Rockwell calls, uh, or what she calls, I forget who coined it, but she, she keeps the stove lit. So when she's doing a scene, especially if it's like a trying scene with emotions, you know, um, she, she kind of stays in it. She won't get on a cell phone and check social media. She won't say, oh, there was this time that Jimmy Conn and Rob Reiner and I in the set of misery. She's not trying to do that, man. She's like trying to stay in it and, and stay focused like she's in the middle of a playoff game and she's an athlete which I really admire and respect. Sometimes I need to do the same thing, but more often than not, I'm cracking jokes and, and I'm taking the pot off the stove after every take, you know? Yeah. And then when you, well, that's when you go from getting the lead in this movie, working with people like Sam and, and uh, Sam Rockwell and Kathy Bates, uh, and I would I would equate this to the stand up. The more and more you do stand up, or the more and more you, you you kind of stretch those muscles. But to put yourself in the leader, how much are you learning from them? How much are you learning from watching all of them? And do you get intimidated at all in this first role, or is it one of those moments? I mean, this is the moment I am just going to capture it. So the first question to answer would be, I I learn a lot, but it's really also just attitudinal. You're watching people react in real time to whatever is occurring. So with, with Rockwell, it's a lot of the little pieces. You already know the big piece of like the arc of the character and the, what the movie's about. Right. But for him, he's looking at all the little pieces and it's shaping all the big choices. Um, so he's got scribbly marks all over his script, all over the place. So I like that he exhausts his thoughts and does the homework with Kathy. It's the keeping the stove lit thing uh, with John Hamm. It's doing little altering things. So when John and I have our scene at the end where we square off for him, he gave the same truth every take, but he did it at varying levels. Sometimes it was nonchalance. Sometimes it was like borderline rage where he seems offended. And other yeah. times it's keeping it professional down the middle. And I, you know, Ed, I've seen Ed Harris do that too. I worked with Ed Harris where Ed and John are similar, where it's, I'm giving you the same truth at tiny increments of variable. Um, so I learned from everybody, you know, um, but in answer to the second question, was I intimidated, bro? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I do not look at myself in the morning and be like, I'm the shit. I tell you, black person. Uh -uh. Not close. Uh, I think I'm real blessed and real lucky. Um, I I love what I do, but by no means do I think I have a handle on all of it. I'm still fighting for every little thing. I just did this movie so 
it's a COVID movie that'll be out by the end of the year. I exhausted my thought on that one where I had a day and a half to play this character in a wheelchair. And I'm like, how do I try to bring some authenticity to this? I barely have any time. Um, so for, for Richard Jewell, there were mornings where my guy would pick me up from, um, where did I live? What is that marketplace in Atlanta? I'm having a brain fart. Uh, in Atlanta, I'm not sure. Pond City Market. Okay. So I stayed in Pond City Market. He picked me up, take me to set. And we'd arrive on the on the set with like the trailers and everything. The PA would walk up to my door and I would stop him or her because I needed to amp myself up. Yeah. So I'd be playing Chance the Rapper, Kendrick Lamar, worship music from Hillsong. Like I needed stuff to literally I would beat my chest and drink coffee and sometimes shout stuff just to hype myself up like a psycho. Because I'm scared to death. I don't want to ruin a movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, especially when you're in when you're in the lead there. But I mean, you get you do this movie, you finish, and there's two there's two. I'm sure when you when you finish it once a wrap, you never know what it's going to look like at, at, when it when it's over and done with. I'm sure you're maybe you weren't, but I I feel you're probably pretty confident with your performance. I think you captured, like you said, it was very grounded. I learned more stuff about Richard Jewell because I think that what the point of the movie was was that. To this day, until that film came out, people were still like, "Did that guy do it?" Like, I'm not sure. They, it, it was it was it's weird. It's insane. I, I think, I think with the performance, it was about keeping it real yeah. and, and lowering lowering everything. Like every time I did a take, I was like, "How can I?" I, I did Super Troopers too. I did a tiny part, yeah. and Jay Shander. I kept trying to be really goofy, and Jay Shander. Less sauce. Um, so I kept I remembered him saying that and I told that to myself almost daily on Richard Jewell. Less sauce, less sauce. Keep it like documentary acting, not acting acting, documentary acting where you don't know the cameras there. Um, because sometimes we're overly conscious. But that film, the fact that people still thought he might have been the bomber is freaking insane. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. It's so yeah. It's so, so unfair. And I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe it's advertising money and people are trying to keep the news sexy with depression. Yes. But, you know, they don't do near enough stories about good things happening. It's constantly there's a tornado inside of a hurricane inside of a fire pit. Right. And all of our politicians are roasting children over the fire. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it's, never, right. it's never anything but calamities. Right. So they're for all they covered on Richard Jewell maybe being the guy, they didn't cover a damn thing about him being uh exonerated. And that's no, ridiculous. No, and I'm glad that you guys were able to do that. But I'll tell you, you bring up unfair, and I'll tell you what I thought was unfair. And uh and and this is not to blow smoke up your ass too, but I think that the fact that you uh you, you I think that my personal opinion on this whole thing is I, I think that you should have definitely, uh, if not won the Oscar, should definitely should be nominated for it. And I will also tell you that I think that a part of this, the reason why was because of this Kathy Scroogs, um controversy that went down inside. That's my personal opinion of it. Uh, and I and I think that that. And and I look at that, and I think that you were really classy about it to where every, everything that you kind of had talked about within the whole thing. But do you when you because you get this lead role. And the buzz starts coming and it doesn't happen. Do you at that point, 
obviously the, the answer is, of course, I was bummed. But do you just move on and you say, okay, great. It is what it is. I got this role. How do you, how do you handle that? Is it the same thing because your relationship with, with Jesus and, and you're able to sit down and go, okay, look, this is what it is. This is what I'm willing to do. Let's move on to the next thing. I have like so many things I could say about that, but I don't want to uh, bore you. I would say at its most boiled not down. Boring not boring me at all. What's that? You would not bore me at all to say whatever you'd like to say. At, at its most boiled down to honest, I would say no, late November of last year comes. I see the movie at the Chinese theater uh, with, you know, three, 400 people or whatever. I think it's a good movie. You did a good job. I like this. Awesome. Proud. Uh, the next day or whatever, Peter Hammond and people are like, Paul Hauser and Sam Rockwell enter the Oscar race. And I'm just like, holy crap. Like, I I was just happy the movie didn't suck. I didn't think people would be writing headlines about me or, well, Sam and Kathy maybe, but I didn't think I would be even mentioned for Oscar stuff. And then what happened was weird. All of the month of December, I know sold it, and I was just enjoying the free shrimp. I'd go to parties. I would <laughs> read the article. But I, I didn't care. I was just enjoying the ride. No part of me was attached to award season. January comes, and I get the National Board of Review Award in New York. And something changed where, like, the first, second week of January, I started becoming a little bit entwined with that and a little bit full of shit. And I wasn't mistreating anyone, but I had an inflated sense of importance for about three or four weeks. And it spoiled what was so fun about December was then spoiled in January. And when I realized I wasn't getting any awards outside of uh, some critical praise, um, it kind of like put a damper on the movie for me, which is, by the way, childish and ridiculous, to say the least. But it's also just the emotional roller coaster you go on when you go from no one talking to you to everybody grabbing at you all of a sudden. It feels weird. You, you, you have people whispering in your ear. You're just trying to enjoy the free shrimp, and you're just taking a sip of your whatever, and you have people in your ear who won't shut up about award season. And they're like, you're getting nominated. Wait for it to happen. You're getting nominated. Wait for it. And it's like, I never asked for that. That's just a byproduct of being in that environment. So uh, – you know, I wish the film performed better financially. I felt horrible that I started in a movie and it lost money for Warner Brothers. But I'm really happy that the Jewel family had about the best closure you can have post-mortem. And they have more peace and, and stuff to celebrate. So uh, it bounced out. But, but all in all, what I learned is Christian Bale was incredible in Ford vs. Ferrari. No surprise. He always is. Adam Taylor gave the maybe career best performance of, of his whole career in Uncut Gems. Not nominated either. So it's like, how can you be mad when Christian Bale and Sandler aren't getting nominated uh, and believe that you should be nominated? It's kind of hard to be sad about it when you put it that way. I think it's a whole other discussion where I still believe that there's there there needs to be more people that are able to be nominated than just five. I think that it's that's there's so many more movies now, and especially with all the with streaming. And I know with Netflix, you're able to put movies in that get them qualified depending on the run. I think I just think that there's there's way more performances and more stuff that's out there now that the the categories need to expand in general. That's that's uh, uh again, mind you, mind you. 
nobody, people are just kind of finding out about me. There's tons of people who haven't even seen Richard Jewell. So if I was someone of the stature of maybe Paul Dano famous and I had done Richard Jewell, I would have had a way better shot at being nominated. I think those that even saw Richard Jewell kind of forgot it was an actor and they probably just felt like they watched the Richard Jewell story. I think some of that happens when you don't, because I'm not a famous celebrity. If I was, I think it would have felt more transformative. Instead, I think they just felt like they were watching the guy. But that in and of itself is also a win, you know? Total win. Um, I only got a couple more minutes here, so I wanted to uh, – let's talk about Cobra Kai before we uh, before we take off here, too, because sure. Cobra Kai Season 2, um, you know, that's when you – and, I again, when you appeared, it's like, oh, yeah, there he is. <laughs> this is Paul. And then you get to be part of Cobra Kai, uh, which is amazing in general. But, like, one of the things, again, that I was talking about with Sholo with you is that – and you mentioned how you improvise. He had given you um, so much praise on your improv skills and watching you. Sometimes you know he's in, in watching you kind of go off. But I also feel that John, Hayden, and Josh give more freedom than that than anybody else. Am I, am I, am I wrong about that? Yeah, in a way you are because, you know, they have so much to focus on because of the vast – overarching stories of all the ensemble characters that they actually can't allow that much improv because they have to keep the show moving. The show is only 25 to 35 minutes long, if I'm not mistaken. So, so yeah, no, there wasn't a ton of improv there. Weirdly enough, I get more improv out of Spike and Clint than I do other comedies. Okay. Oh, you know what? Before I, I, I have to ask this before we jump back, before I get to Cobra Kai, sorry, I would be really upset with myself with the five bloods um, and working on that movie. That's another one that as that movie comes out and I obviously see there's a praise for everybody who's in the film, but I start to see your name and I know that you didn't get a chance to war- that you didn't have scenes with Chadwick, but, um, but I know you, you did have an opportunity to meet him while he was on set. Is that, is that right? Spike does a party midway through his shoots to kind of, you know, break things up a little bit and keep the morale high. So we went to this party and he was there in Thailand sitting at a table. It was almost like big picnic table type things. And he kind of had his arms rested on the table like this. And at one point kind of had his head like this. Yeah. And he looked pretty gaunt and pretty fatigued. And I didn't know what to make of it. Maybe he had jet lag. Maybe he was tired from filming. Wasn't sure, but he didn't look super happy or energized. And I thought, you have nothing to say to this guy outside of, hey, man, love Black Panther. Congrats on everything. How do you feel? Like, I didn't want to bother him. He looked like he didn't didn't look negative or mean. He just looked like he didn't want to be bothered. He was tired. So I, I had a chance to talk to him. I never spoke to him. I saw him on a Zoom when we did like a Zoom with the cast and crew and we toasted champagne glasses, gave little speeches and watched the film before Netflix released it. And that was, that was sweet. Chad, Chad was with all his friends and family. He was in a room of like eight to 10 people. They're all sitting on the floor together, looking really peaceful and sweet. Just really, really honored that they're talking to Spike and really happy that the film turned out. And, and that was the last I saw him, man. It's, yeah. it's, it sucks. It, it makes no sense to me that, well, once again, it goes back to why people stop believing in God. They look at it like, why do you let bad things happen to good people? But I don't look at that as the measure of God's works as much as I look at um, 
beautiful the beautiful people is a measure of God's works. And by the way, Chadwick was an open Christian, just like Denzel, just like uh, a bunch of bunch of guys, Wahlberg, myself, and uh, I think I think he's sitting pretty right now, colon cancer free, man. Yeah, man. As I, I did, I had a, I had the opportunity to to interview him back when I was with Fandango, and he had this like really quiet confidence about him, but he was just a very, very open dude and a, a nice, nice guy. And it, it broke my heart. It broke my heart when, uh, when, when I heard it. So thank you for for speaking. I appreciate it. Um, all right. So John, Cobra Kai. John Hamm texted me after Chadwick died, and he said, "Go, go get a colonoscopy, dude. You don't have to be fifty years old to get one." Like stop playing around and go, go get yourself checked up. So uh, yeah, uh, I echo that to everybody else. Um, you know, if you're over 30 or whatever, just go get it done anyway. Just do it. Yeah. I'm going to have to do the the same for, uh, again, cause it, life's too short. My, my man, I, it definitely is. Um, all right. Before again, Cobra Kai is on, uh, Netflix right now. Seasons one and two. Did you, did you shoot three already? You're, you're done with three, right? You can't uh, season three is edited. It's just waiting to get dropped. But um, season three might be the best season. And um, the hope is that Netflix sees the desire from the audience and, and they grant a fourth and fifth and sixth. That's the hope. Oh, dude, with Mick Foley tweeting out about it, Whoopi Goldberg, all this uh, hype before people are finally catching on to it. I mean, you know, it was a big cult thing on YouTube, but the fact that now it's hitting Netflix and everybody loves it, I can guarantee four or five. I, I, I just be watching it last night and watching that scene between Johnny and Miguel as they're on, they're sitting down and you see Johnny's point of view of where essentially Daniel is the villain. It's, it's so brilliant the way that they do it. But um, yeah, I don't want to keep you any longer, my man. I know you got to, you got to get going here. I listen, I love that show. And when I got the offer, I was like, this might be really cheesy. Four episodes and I loved it. So it was a treat to do that show. I'm honored that I'm in that sort of lexicon or that world. And um, I just want to keep doing more. We'll, we'll see where Stingray pops up. But uh, yeah, I'm really honored to do that show, man. I'm glad it's catching on. And by the way, as much as you talked about me with the Oscar for Jewel, I would like to then pass that on for Billy Zabka. This guy deserves an Emmy nomination for his dramatic, not comedic, dramatic work in season two. Yeah. Um, the dude is really good and understated and genuine. And uh, will the, will he ever get an Emmy nod? Probably not, knowing how these things work. But I think he's definitely deserving of one. You don't think he'll get a nod? I think he might. I think he might. You don't think so? How come? You- they copy and paste all that crap. So when you look at the Emmys, it's – and by the way, it sounds like I'm like – I'm just being honest. I haven't seen Michael Douglas in the Kaminsky method. Um, I haven't seen Don Cheadle in uh, Black Monday yet. But I'm guessing that I wouldn't think they're more brilliant than, say, Jimmy Tatro in season one of American Vandal. Because comedy is about laughing out loud. And I think, like, there are brilliant people like Caitlin Olsen on It's Always Sunny who never got an Emmy nod for her work. Um, so I'm just like, at the end of the day, it's like, they're going to nominate whoever they think is cool. They don't. It's not a meritocracy by any means. Um, all right. So, Paul Walter Hauser, once again, uh, dude, I can't thank you enough for joining me here today on, on the show. I'm glad to finally have gotten to sit down. The other last question I have is, 
what is your movie trivia skills like? Because to have you in a match would be incredible. Because we saw Jericho, we saw Smith do it. I feel like you would be pretty good. Am I? What do you think? I think I'd be great at it. Yeah. To me, it's all about the challenger. I want to do it, but it's got to be somebody really good. Like I want it the way Chris had Kevin. I need a I need a heavy hitter, man. Well, we got to find that about, that guy or gal. What about Doug Benson? Doug's got too many dead brain cells. I need a real challenge, bro. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Walter Hauser. Give him a follow, by the way, on Twitter. He's a great follow over there, too. He's doing so much at Cobra Kai. So many great things coming up down the pike. Also, uh, you got uh, you got Cruella coming out, uh, as, uh, Silk Road. There's so, so many cool things that he's got going on. So check him out. Follow him on Twitter. And, Paul, again, my man, thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to doing it again. Stay in lead. Peace out, guys. Peace.